0: Hello and welcome to The Great Woman Artists podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favourite jewellery brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for great women artist listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I wanted to tell you a little bit about how we make our jewellery at Alighieri. We make everything in wax, I sculpt them like mini sculptures and carry them by hand like fragile little creatures to our casters in London's Hatton Garden. Our casters are an amazing family run business and they take this little wax and transform it through the ancient art of lost wax casting whereby the wax is transformed into recycled bronze and silver before being gold-plated and finding its way to you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I couldn't be more excited that today on the Great Woman Artist Podcast, we are speaking to the world's leading feminist art historian, the phenomenal Griselda Pollock. Currently the Professor of Social and Critical Histories of Art and Director of the Centre for Cultural Analysis, Theory and History at the University of Leeds. Griselda Pollock studied at Oxford and then after the Courtauld, where she completed her doctoral dissertation on Van Gogh's concept of the modern, written concurrently with her brilliant and enlightening founding feminist intervention, co-authored with Rosika Parker, titled Old Mistresses, Women, Art and Ideology. Having just completed 43 years of dedicated teaching and research, Pollock has spent decades developing an international queer postcolonial feminist analysis of arts diverse histories, focusing increasingly on formulating new concepts with which to deliver feminist interventions in arts histories. The author of 26 books and an editor of many more, Pollock's indefatigable career has seen her write dozens of book chapters, articles, curate numerous exhibitions at museums, make several films, and theorise extensively on modern and contemporary artist women from Lee Krasner, Eva Hesse, Lubena Hemid, Georgia O'Keefe, Tracy Emin, and many, many more. With three forthcoming titles in the works, recent publications have included the major monograph and the first major art historical study of the artist, Charlotte Salomon, and the Theatre of Memory, Lieben oder Theatre, 1941 to 1943, published by Yale in 2018. And this year, she is the 2020 Laureate of the Holberg Prize awarded for her work on feminism and arts histories. But the reason why we are speaking to Griselda today is because as well as being a social and feminist historian of 19th and 20th century and contemporary art, she is also a transdisciplinary cultural analysis focusing in cultural studies and Jewish studies, crossing art, museology, philosophy and film. She has also analysed the formation of the cultural memory of the Holocaust, as well as identifying additional dimension of the cultural memory, totalitarian terror. And that is why today we will be looking at the incredible work of the great and pioneering artist Alina Shapovnikov. Griselda Pollock, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. And thank you so
1: much, Katie, for a lovely introduction and also for... Welcoming me to this opportunity to speak about Alina Shapochnikov.
0: Oh, it's completely my pleasure and such an honor. Thank you, Griselda, so much for coming on the podcast today. I know so many of our listeners will be extremely familiar with your work. I can still remember picking up Old Mistresses at university, and what an impact that had on myself and so many others around me. But the artist we are going to be discussing today is just one of the most extraordinary makers of the 20th century. I've been lucky enough to witness her work at Hepworth Wakefield, and more recently at. Worth. And when confronted with one of her sculptures, your body can't help but just react to them. They are these fragments and limbs of our bodies cast in such a range of materials from industrial to fleshy. So I'd just love to start off by asking you, how do you feel when you are confronted with an Alina Shapovnikov work?
1: Well, I don't know that I describe it in a sense of feeling, clearly challenged to understand what I'm looking at. Because her work breaks so many rules and grapples with such profound issues. So on the one hand, I'm struck by the whole question of what has she done to sculpture? What has she done to the body? And then on the other hand is what possibly could be the condition of living and the subjectivity and the experience historical that would make these kinds of work a necessity? Because in the trajectory of her work, she moves from having been trained in restoration of Baroque sculpture, so the grand tradition of stonemasons and carving, creating perfect and beautiful forms out of hard and difficult materials, to work that lies on the floor abjectly with hair and old bits of clothing or bedding stuffed into resin that has begun to discolor, which brings up sort of feelings of abjection. And yet at the same time, some of them are so delicate and peaceful and this beautiful image of her face floating in these objects on the floor and then you turn around and you find these striking funny erotic pieces so shocking this great pink penis on which a a, a female figure is leaning casually with the sort of penis on her arm or a penis rising up and then a, a mold of the buttocks like a kind of dish on top yes which is actually very troubling Right. This is some evocation of quite explicit sexuality that's being displaced and played with. So I don't think any of us know how to feel in front of her work because the shock and the challenge and the density and the complexity and the brilliance leave us wandering around our exhibitions thinking, what am I looking at? Who could I turn to to give me guidance to understand how she's engaged with surrealism, pop art, abstraction, organic as well as this engagement with cement and materials and then the new industrial materials of the 1970s that Eva Hesse and others used in extraordinary ways. And I think I feel this intense desire to study it and think about it and live with it and try and puzzle it out. Totally. And when was it that you first heard of her work? I went to Warsaw on the occasion of a first big exhibition of Louise Bourgeois in Warsaw at Zechenta, which is the Central Museum of Modern Art in Warsaw. Oh, wow. I was invited by Pavel Leskovich, who's written one of the greatest articles on, on Louise Bourgeois, and Pavel Kitlinski, who was a feminist cultural theorist. And they all are feminist, queer, and fighting the anti-Semitism in Poland. Anyway, they invited me and they put into my hand the catalogue of Ander Rottenberg's 1998 exhibition, which was the first big exhibition of her work in Poland since her death and anywhere in Europe. And they said, you're a Western art historian, you're a feminist art historian, none of you know anything about Eastern European artists. Now that the 1989, the, the wall has come down, you have to understand there's this whole world of artists who have been closed to the West for 50 years. Yeah. So I took this and I immediately looked and I, I want to say I, I'm holding this book in my hand when I got it. I looked at the self-portrait that's on the cover and I thought, again, this kind of shock. What is this? This is unlike anything I've seen. It has a marble base that is partly carved to reveal a certain protuberances which are smoothed up, which suggest shoulders and then breasts. And then mounted on it are two discs of resin, in which is embedded a cast just of the mouth. So there are no eyes and Mm. you can see through the back. And yet you have this fragment of a body perched on something else, which is obviously carved in Carrara marble, as if it's Michelangelo. And we know she went to Carrara to that area where the great marble comes from, not at the same time as Louise Bourgeois, but in the same t- two years. So, what are these women going back to marble carving? And this mixture of skilled carving and evocation of the body in the tradition of the Western classical art, and then these new materials with this cast, and you begin to think, what is it just to have the mouth? This is a body part. And so I immediately thought, I have to understand this art. And fortunately, at that point, because of the 1998 exhibition, they began to discuss with her son, the Polish government, and they began to develop the archives. And then they did an exhibition called Awkward Objects in about 2009, where they put Shapochnikov conjecture with pop artist that is much forgotten Pauline Boty, but also with various Eastern European sculptors like Maria Bartutsova, who was just about to have her first ever show at the Tate before COVID closed it down. So suddenly again, you see, there's not just one of them, there's a whole community of Eastern European abstract, and I would say surrealist abstract sculptors working in materials. So I was absolutely hooked by that point And wrote on her in my book.
0: Yes I mean the work that you pointed out the self-portrait I mean I think that is one of the most extraordinary works I think also there there's something to say about the lips being part of this more kind of opaque side of the work and also being closed I mean when confronted with this work what sort of questions does it open up for you?
1: Well obviously each of us comes to any artwork with certain preoccupations that have been formed so obviously first one is a feminist question. What does it mean for women to use the body? What does it mean to use something which is, let's say, I immediately think of de Kooning, Woman, yes. this great painting, which he cut out a smile from a camel cigarette advert and drew our attention to this kind of gorgon-type mouth that becomes part of cosmetic. And you know, and I also study Marilyn Monroe, so I have all these images of her smile. And you begin to think, yes, of course, this is a complicated question of the body parts or the fetishization of them. And also makeup makes a completely different concept of the face, the eyes, and then she or she has done, but they are closed. And that means something. I mean, at at a certain point, people, I mean, didn't know to some extent how much it was involved in sexuality, and particularly pornography. so what is the question here? Is this silence? Or this is a reminder of a sexuality? Or is it a refusal to smile. All of these are questions. I don't have the answer and none of us will know. We're just left a puzzle because the work is there with this strange combination.
0: So, I mean, Alina Shapovnikov was born in 1926 into a Jewish intellectual family in Poland. I mean, then the largest Jewish community in the world. What did it mean to be born into a Jewish intellectual family with professional working parents in Poland at that time in the 20s?
1: great question. I'm going to give you three particular answers. One is, after 1918, Poland finally gets free from being either part of Russia or Germany, or China. it becomes a free republic. And it's one of these early 20th century democratic republics who embrace modernism. So in one sense, she's born into the first decade of of a revival of Polish nationalism and Polish autonomy and independence. This is one of the centres of Jewish culture, religious and non-religious, and there's a great embrace of modernism by many modernising younger Jewish folk. And her mother is a doctor, so it's part of that generation of women claiming a place in the world. So this would be a very exciting period. But at the same time, side by side, and particularly from the 30s onwards, Nationalist anti-Semitism in Poland becomes much more acute. Although the population is three million, 10% of the Polish population, sometimes 40% of some of the cities and villages. So there's an intimacy between Polish and Jewish worlds. But there is this Christian anti-Semitism, which is the Jews killed Christ. And every Catholic who goes to church every year and celebrates Easter knows the Jews killed Christ. So this is not only sort of a certain kind of ethnic hostility, but there's one that's constantly repeated, which is unjust to the Jewish people. I would say the Romans killed uh, this Jewish (laughs) man uh, because the Romans were the occupying forces. And then when I said this in Rome, I suddenly thought, I can't accuse the Romans. They'll be (laughs) cross with me too. But it is clear that this is a mythology and it's a powerful, but you also have legal restrictions. You can only have two Jewish children a class. So it's an early encounter with the possibilities of new worlds for modernization and at the same time bumping up against this, which will become acute after the 1st of September 1939, when the German Third Reich, the Nazi Third Reich, invades Poland and leads to, on the 3rd of September, the declaration of war. But within weeks of arriving in Poland, they have sent all the Jews to ghettos. So having lived in an ordinary middle-class house in a nice suburb with a bed, the bathroom and wash facilities, you are suddenly all taken from that and herded into the cheapest, the worst. I mean, sometimes there were brick factories. You sleep on the floor. You can't keep control of your possessions. You are literally stripped of everything. You will be dirty. You will be hungry. You are crowded together. You've lost your identity. So this first 13 years of her life is a very contradictory one, full of possibility, full of growing anti-Semitism, and finally the absolute shock of being taken out of your house and put in a kind of cattle-like conditions before then being moved. So she's first in the Pabinice ghetto and then they're moved into the ghetto in Łódź. We spell L-O-D-Z and in English it's Lodge, but in Polish it's Łódź, which is an infamous
0: ghetto. Yes, of course, but I mean, where were her family at this point?
1: Her father died from tuberculosis in 1938, so she has her mother and her brother and they are all sent to the ghetto in the town they're in and then after a few months they're moved to the big ghetto in Woj, which is is Wodz is the Manchester of Poland. It's the center of all industry, it's vastly wealthy, vastly developed, and they create a ghetto in, in Woj, which actually is interesting because it's the one that lasts longest from 42 to 44, and it's ruled by the infamous Chaim Rumkowski, who was one of these people who decided that if they negotiated with the Nazis to keep the majority alive by sacrificing some people. So he was the one who had to make the choices every month of who would be sent to the gas chambers in Chelmno, which is about 50 kilometers away. And Chelmno is the first place that gassing was used to murder Jews. Now, in the ghetto, first year, you get 1,000 calories a day. Now, any of us who know that we want to lose weight know that if you eat less than 1500 as a woman you will lose two pounds a week so if you lose a thousand pounds calories you're starving and then they reduce it to 800 calories by the end rivka Shapochnikov, shapochnikov's mother is a doctor a pediatrician so she gets work in the ghetto hospital and Alina is able to work with her as a nurse. But in my book, I talk about the fact that if you want to understand this, you should read a book by Janina Bauman called Winter in the Morning, because she was also from 13 to 18 in hiding and in the Warsaw Ghetto. And the two things that are really interesting I'd like to bring to your attention is, on the one hand, you cannot imagine the, the terror, regular transports, and you know that they are, they're dead because their clothes come back for you to sell them again to Germany. People are dying of starvation because you have no money and no means of earning it necessarily. So there are bodies on the street, right? But you have to pay for bodies to be buried, so you take the clothes so nobody can identify them. So there are corpses. So there are people staggering about. You are starving, and we can't imagine that. And yet, at the same time, there's a school and the young people get together. And one of the most telling things I remember from Janina Bauman's book is the kids, the 15-year-olds get together and say, we're going to die. Should we have sex now? So we know what we have missed. We have no future. We we know we will not live throughout this. Right. So but they're also obviously then developing sexuality, falling in love talking about things, struggling to keep their studies going. And so we have to hold these two aspects in our mind of a kind of complete absurdity and horror of the situation, but a paradox of the coming of age in that context. So we have to hold that as an experience, which is a trauma that you will never, ever erase, but you can never describe to anybody.
0: Yeah, I think that's, you know, the fact that she's just a teenager and she's going through so much in her life you know every every, so much it's the most formative years i mean what is the kind of impact of the process known as the holocaust on the young elena shepovnikov
1: i can't answer that because that is the huge issue that those of us who study the notion of trauma on the one hand and the and actually the shape and meaning and substance of the Holocaust. So some of my work is to, to track the entry of the Holocaust into cultural memory by means of literature, particularly memoirs. And then, of course, we have art. So you have to read it symptomatically because Janina Bauman didn't speak of this to her children or her husband until the mid-'80s, right? So only in 1986... After having been liberated in 45, she felt she should tell her children what her life had been. So people carried this, and nobody wanted to know. So there's a beautiful novel called Fatelessness, Imri Kertesz, a great Hungarian, which was made into the film Fateless, which I recommend everybody watches. And he comes back from Buchenwald, and they say, was it bad over there? And the little boy just looks at him saying, "I, I can't even tell you. Right? How could you ask me this? You're you you are from another universe. Yeah. Those of us who've never been there, and also when we come back to trauma, trauma is a force of such shock that the psyche can't digest it. So it's not like you know it happened, and you can say this is what happened. You are absolutely why we say traumatized. It becomes a, like a internal inhabitant. It colonizes you, and it appears symptomatically in irrational fears for things, strange connections, certain behaviors that are the symptom of this kind of pressure of this undigested treat. So why my work was concerned with how can art become a form of aesthetic transformation? How does it surface? And you have to read it symptomatically. So I don't know what the impact is. I discern an impact surfacing in her work. And I see it surfacing in the form of her desire at the beginning of her career to make whole bodies, yeah. to fashion a, a whole, not a desecrated, not a emaciated, not a dead, not a yeah. starved body. But then as her work goes on in sense, the pressure of this surfaces and surfaces in the level at which ultimately her work literally goes from the upright to the horizontal, which is the axis of the dead. And You know, it lies on the ground and it's in fragments. And there are strangely lovely bits of her body and strangely abject, horrifying elements that inspire disgust or shock, which she found through her materials. So it's not conscious, this is what it meant. And she refused to speak about it because there is no speaking, because you haven't just witnessed horror, you have been shamed. You have been reduced as a human being to a level that we can't even imagine and forced to do things to live that no one would want to confess to. So we have to be
0: enormously compassionate and caring and subtle and sensitive. Definitely, definitely. I mean, at her liberation in 1945, she obviously didn't go home to Poland because there was nothing left of it but she went to prague and here you know she initially worked with several artists on projects to restore baroque sculptures i mean what you're saying about this idea of reclamation and making figures we don't have first hand accounts of as to why she did this but the fact that she's physically literally piecing the body back together i mean what do you think this says about her and the fact that she actually pursued sculpture so soon after the horrors of the Holocaust?
1: Well, of course, because it didn't have a name, each person was enclosed in their own world. They knew that it happened to lots of others, but they didn't know the extent of it. Her experience is to be in the Wuj ghetto for two years. Then, as the Russians defeated the Germans in Stalingrad in 1943 and start coming west, the Germans send people who survived all the way. I mean, only very few out of the 200,000 people in the ghetto survived, but those who did survive gets sent first to Auschwitz, and then she goes to Bergen-Belsen, which is obviously the same trajectory as Anne Frank. And then they send her back to Terezin, which is in Czechoslovakia. Now, there is no going home because you know what the Polish people participated in, in Poland. There's no going home to Poland if you're Jewish. So we can't say Poland is home, but she pretends she's Czech. And obviously they probably walked from Terezin to Prague and she has to earn her living. So she starts working in a stonemason's and goes to the art school. I suspect they were free. We don't know anything about her artistic inclinations beforehand because they were obviously interrupted at age 13. But again, I say, I don't know what, why she did it. I know that she did it. And that's then for me the art historian to say, what does that mean? You know, when I look at the work, I think, is this related? The desire to make things, to, to, to sculpture as opposed to draw things.
0: Was she interested in drawing at this time? Was she a trained draftswoman? She's a brilliant draftswoman. There's a fabulous,
1: fabulous world of
0: drawings. And in
1: some sense, the drawings are exploring sculptural issues. And I always think to try and get out of sculpture, to get beyond the constraints of what she then studied. Because what it is to be trained as a sculptor, observation, close analysis, eye-hand coordination. And so you are thought what sculpture has to balance it has to stand up because it has to be self-sustaining and of course we know that in the eastern european countries there is going to be a huge demand for sculpture restoration because so much yeah. was damaged yeah, and also as the stalinist program begins to take over and determine art education there is a culture of monumental sculpture making yeah but as it were coming through that. She's got to question not only, I think we're getting onto it, this question of why sculpture is linked to the body, but then yeah. why the body has to f- fall apart, because she won't be part of this monumentalization. Like many of them, and again, why were so many Jewish intellectuals in the 1930s left wing? They weren't Stalinists. They believed that when they witnessed the Depression... They witnessed the horror of capitalism's collapse in the 1930s and the starvation. There must be a better way. So they embraced this way. Then, of course, what they're saying about this new Poland, we can be this new socialist society, but it becomes Stalinized and they see that this is just authoritarian violence. So we can think about the work called Exhumed.
0: Yes, from 55.
1: Then... In 1956, the Russians crushed the uprising in Hungary against Stalinist communism. So we've we forgotten. This is the great, the fifty six uprising, when they rolled in the tanks and they destroyed the young people. And one of the people who was part of that is executed, and she makes this piece exhumed to honor him, but his body, possibly damaged and even burnt by the treatment from the Russians, nonetheless evokes the burnt bodies that we now know from seeing the footage of Auschwitz and others. But it's as if at that point, she refuses this whole tradition. So by the late
0: 50s, we see a a radical change. I mean, these are just such sensitive and powerful works. I mean, she moves to Paris in the early 1960s, and she's involved in a really interesting and sort of mixed artist colony, friends included, you know, Saint Fal. I mean, can you give us some context in which she was working in Paris in the 60s? Okay,
1: so she studied in Paris in 1947, 48, which would mean she would know about Arp and Dubuffet And the whole tradition of abstract sculpture, she would have seen Giacometti. So she's a very, very educated artist. When she goes back to Paris, there's been a shift because Paris is going to be in the community of what we call pop art. So we're going to engage with everyday materials, everyday subjects. And we've got Niki de Saint-Fal, who is doing her shooting paintings. And we have her letters to her ex-husband who becomes the director of the famous Museum of Modern Art in Lodge. But she's divorced him and she's now working with Roman Shislevich, who is one of the great, great modern designers. So through him, she's absolutely part of whatever is hot and happening in Paris. You can see the question of moving away from monumental, formal, traditional sculpture. She then embraces this interest in the machine and as it comes along, the greater interest in different kind of materials.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just years before in 1962, she actually casts her leg for the first time ever as a sort of fragmented leg. And then it's almost kind of life size. And so you really kind of put yourself in this position where your limbs are made up of these kind of mechanical objects in a way. Yeah,
1: I think the whole question of casting and body casting Becomes a very great theme, and it runs right the way through to some of the Herbarium, which is this last work where she makes casts of herself and her son's body in a soft resin, which then she uses the theory of the plaster to make these flattened, hanging bodies, which are flayed. It's like flaying the body. And I think there is a long struggle in her work between this whole body and the body and the sexual body and the dying body, the mortal body, the vulnerable body. And that gives the work a constant tension between a troubling extremity of humorous eroticism, and then this sense of brokenness, of sickness, of deformedness. So I think the casting of the leg, and then she casts it in bronze and places it on a beautifully sculpted globe in a way that that reminds me very much of some of the things that we find with Louise Bourgeois. Now, we don't know to what extent she knew of Louise Bourgeois because of course, Louise Bourgeois's work wasn't widely exhibited. What we now understand is the greatness of Louise Bourgeois's long career. Was hidden because she was just Louise. But I mean, again, you have Louise Bourgeois making her personnage, which are upright figures. These people in the fifties, and then she begins to work on fragments and combinations, because this is a whole new language of the body as disarticulated and reconstituted in a completely non-classical way. So one of the, in a sense, the various projects of the modern sculptor, is both to say, what do we do with the classical tradition in the West? From the Greeks all the way through to the Neoclassicism and even to Rodin, you know, and and what do we do with this legacy once we've witnessed these two traumas, the First World War, which absolutely devastated the body. Because you must remember that people came back from the First World War with missing faces and missing limbs. There were cripples. There were disfigured people everywhere. This is the great trauma of the 1920s, which George Gross and others. And then, on the other hand, as the increasing documentation of what happened in the concentration camps. But if you think it's 1955, René's film Night and Fog, every time I show that to anybody, they are sick this image of the desecrated, abandoned, unburied, dead body is the image in the imagination, along with the barbed wire of that legacy. And Goddard says, you know, cinema never took on the camps, but lots of artists do. And we are progressively seeing when we ask these questions that this new configuration of incomplete or composed or fractured bodies, it's no longer possible to hold to this Apollonian or Venusian ideal. You have to do life, death, disease, illness, mortality and sex in a different language. And that's where I think this just this one isolated leg and then we'll begin to see the particularly the cast of her face, of her breasts and her buttocks this becomes her language, which is female. Yes. And it's not fetishized, pornographic bodies. It's ordinary bodies. And the fact she does so much with breasts, obviously her breast cancer comes once and comes back and finally kills her. But obviously we now know from studies of women who have breast cancer how it assaults your sense of yourself and what happens when it's abused or when it... Tries to kill you. And I think this is really kind of such a crucial element of understanding not her psychology, but how her work touches on what we now, as a result of this kind of work and other people's writing, pay attention to. That's it's always we learn from the art, not because the artists knew what they were doing, they felt compelled to out of all sorts of things which are private and diverse. She's really rearticulating the body, which is what Nikki de Saint-Fal would do with her nanas. And in nineteen sixty seven she does the great sculpture of the lying the woman which you can enter into. So this is the decade in which also Hannah Wilkie is doing yeah. extraordinary work in America through the sixties with felt and clay around the labial body, the female sexual body in that way. So long before there's any kind of Articulated feminist discourse on this. These women, and the same is true with Eva Hesse. Yeah. And Eva Hesse also is a a bearer of the legacies of the Holocaust as a child survivor, having the knowledge of what happened to everybody else, also begins to, in a sense, use materials of the body. In completely extraordinary, erotic, and terrifying way.
0: Yes, I think when you look at a Shaponikov work, it's full of contradictions. You know, at once it's erotic, but it's once terrifying. You know, when you are confronted with them, there are just so many questions that you pose. And obviously, what you're talking about, the context, it is such a rich and deeply traumatic context but I'm interested in these lamp works because I think that's you know what she's very much known for as well and I'm really interested in the sense that challenging this idea of the female body as has been perceived in sculpture but also kind of commercialization you know this was the 60s it was pop-up but also the kind of rise of commercialization by fusing parts of the female body with household objects was she trying to make some kind of feminist statement or what do these lamps mean? I keep saying, I don't know. <laughs> I you know, Sorry. I mean, you know, in that that's an important point
1: because most of our kind of ways that we're taught to look at art is to assume the artist has an idea and it expresses that idea in an artwork. And then we're meant to arrive and find from the artwork this artist's idea. All we do is we have artists make work. They feel compelled to make work. They think, what about doing this? Well, that's an idea. Let's try that. What would happen if? Right, yeah. and then there's a feedback loop I quite like this. This is kind of interesting. Oh, they think it's really fascinating, but it's always within a context of what made it imaginable to do that at that point. So we can't just say this pop art. The whole consciousness, right, that we call pop art. And we get past art history's labels. Why are people? Because this is the era of commodity fetishism of mass manufacture. They've gone through the 1930s, right? Depression, catastrophic destruction of capitalists things. Then there's been a world war. People have been in rationing and in war conditions and all the rest of it. And then we begin to see the economies pick up. So by the 60s, we are in this era where the artists, which we call pop artists in America, but in in Europe, are beginning to say there's something going on in the world to do with Object materialization. There's a whole new kind of advertising. We've got television come on stream. We're going to find, you know, advertising as a huge part of our experience, color movies and, and cinemascope and the mass export of American goods. So, this the whole issue is Americanization. It's the selling of America, and Laura Mulvey talks about this. You know, America is sold as glamorous and sexy. You want these shiny cars, you want these shiny movies, you're going to see complete transformation in vogue, you know, a whole different kind of female body, a whole different sculpture. You're going to get the swinging 60s, and she's absolutely in on that. She's picking up on that with some of her curious figures. So Uh, they are paying attention to this. And I think what's so interesting with the lamps is the experimentation with electricity as a device for introducing this uncanny color into these transparent materials and using these colors of consumption these are oral. Yeah, they're like ice when cream. Well, she, well, she, does, she does
0: actually do that. She puts those fleshy lips as ice cream scoops in sort of fleshy bowls. Exactly.
1: And at the same time, there is, for me, something very disturbing about that, about yes. the explicitness. Yeah. And I can't justify it but because I do work on issues to do with abuse and how it appears symptomatically, even in people who can't acknowledge it, but there's an explicitness there which we are now exploiting. And I really dislike the way that these are the works that are being taken up by the dealers because they know collectors will think it great to have an Alina Shapochnikov lamp. And it's that kind of overtness and it's that they're very beautifully made. I don't think she was known enough, right? I mean, she didn't have a show. Right, the whole point about you know going to New York in 1970 that I've written about is that she might have just intersected with a whole range of women. But I mean, in 1960, Louise Bourgeois is not recognised, right? Uh, Eva Hesse is not fully recognised. There's this famous exhibition, Eccentric Abstraction, that Lucy Lippard creates in 68 in New York it's only Eva Hesse's death in 70 that suddenly gives her the big show at the Guggenheim and then everybody says who the hell was this woman why didn't we know and then it comes to London in 78 you've got to keep remembering these people are working and they're exhibiting and they I mean Shapochnikov was well known in her time she exhibits at Venice but the work of women is not registering And it's only in our retrospect that we begin to have a language to talk about, that putting them back to say, modernism is co-created by men and women. All these communities are men and women. They're talking to each other. They're interested in each other. They're supporting each other. But it's the curators and the museum people and the art historians who simply ignore the women and make this a kind of desert. So suddenly we have pop art. These are the great pop artists or these are the great art of the 60s. So like, you know, Klaus Oldenburg, everybody knows about Klaus Oldenburg. Hannah Wilkie was there with Klaus Oldenburg in 61, 62, 63, 64. So we have had to create the context for understanding the 60s as this radically interesting thing. But it is the pre-feminist decade with these very, very powerful women's imaginations being articulated in these new materials and forms.
0: Yeah, I mean, because these women are so well known in my world now, it's actually easy to forget that they got written out of history and are still struggling to be included in the main canon of art history, which is why much of it, thanks to your work, we are aware of the greatness and the radicalness of these artists. But I mean, at this time, she's using fleshy materials that evoke at once the body, but also the rise in commercialization. And she talks about her objects as awkward and clumsy and attempting to fix in the resin of imprints of our body. I mean, she's making these really awkward objects after her Lamp series. I mean, like you say, in 1969, she has breast cancer. And you know, also in 1949, she experiences a deadly case of tuberculosis that she survives, but which made her infertile. This idea of trauma and illness has just constantly revisited in her work. And her tumour series that she makes later on, you know, such as the Souvenir series, are kind of personalised with human features, you know, such as fusing images of her and her father at the seaside with an image of a concentration camp victim. I mean, what happens when these lumpy bits of flesh, you know, are personalised with human features? What kind of questions are these kind of tumour, bits of awkward, clumsy objects bringing up? I think
1: this very famous phrase, this quotation that we've used, and many of us look over and over again, in which she makes a statement about, I make awkward and clumsy objects, is to be read very carefully because she sets the and says what we've just been talking about, which is this whole culture the of the, the machine age, the age of the machine made, and that means armaments, but it means cars, all these different aspects of the objects that are made. And she says, I set the body and all its vulnerability against that. And that is a very deep existential statement. That's the deepest of her philosophy, which we must take very seriously. Now, We now know that awareness of dying or the anticipate of it. Now, I have to say, in the beginning of the COVID-19, when they said people over 70 are at risk, I suddenly thought, I'm living in a world where something is out to get me. I'm scared. But I am vulnerable. I am never leaving my house. I am never traveling again. So I'm thinking about this a lot. What does it suddenly mean to have lived with the imminence of death? And I've done a lot of research on this wonderful book by Barney Glaser and Anselm Strauss called Awareness of Dying, where they study the whole phenomenon. of What does it mean? for the patient to discover they're not getting better. Now we have a whole culture of of end-of-life management, but they didn't have this before. She's one of the people at the beginning of this, thinking about the legacies of living for two years, thinking any moment you would be taken and killed, thinking that's that's what's happened to her brother, who disappears, right? And then You survive and then you almost die. And she only survived her tuberculosis because they gave her an experimental treatment of streptomycin because penicillin, although discovered in the 1920s, only gets commercially produced during the war and only becomes available to non-military people at the end of the war. Right. So can you imagine a world without antibiotics? She just survives. But loses her fertility, just takes away from her something that she clearly invested a great deal in, because so many people thought, "Well, we'll just have children, we'll repopulate the world. They killed six million of us. We will come back. We will not be destroyed." So for a Jewish person not to be able to have a child is, is just devastating. But she does adopt a child, and she raises him, lovely, lovely Piotr. and then to succumb to illness, And it's a hideous disease, the pain of it, the agony. she describes the agony. Of this, And she does a drawing of herself, literally with a scar where they've taken her breast off and she lies there and she says, I can't bear the pain. So I think we take this very seriously now because we understand death and we understand cancer and we pay attention. So we don't want to personalize it. The tumors are not her personal expression. She's created a form of sculpture in which this level of human experience can come. That's what art is about. Life, death, desire, survival, and all sorts of things. And so the interesting thing is she makes art with it. She transforms it. She's not just expressing it. They don't reflect it. She's not channeling it. She's speaking the body as what is most human in the face of the world of commodities, the world of industrial warfare, and the world of industrial genocide the great horrors of the 20th century, she is the the kind of the aerial who transmits it. She feels it. It's like the energy feels coming, and she transmits it and gives it a form. And in those forms, we are not looking at anything biological and anatomical. So when you look at the tumors on the ground or the herbarium, you have the same level of pathos as if you're looking at Michelangelo's Pietà. They did it in their language, carved in marble. They are artists are inhabiting the whole history of art for their resources, and she gives them that pathos and that deformity. And that again is the whole thing of holding paradox and absurdity, paradox and pain, you know, this paradoxal intention that makes them brilliant sculptures. Not because they're oh, this poor woman who had this disease and look away, we should feel sorry for. No, no, this is absolutely externalized and formulated. When you come to the souvenir, now that is an absolutely extraordinary piece. And that's again one of these things that often when I'm doing this kind of work and I, I'm not telling the story i'm looking at work and i'm thinking what is this what is this i was arrested by that because it's out of sequence there's nothing like it first it hangs on the wall okay so we're going to get the hanging flayed figures but this is like dried skin but then this particular work fascinates me because it's the pre-war alina shapochnikov in a rare photograph that she preserved how do you preserve photographs through all of that she carries a photograph of her father. Perhaps this is the only photograph of her father she had. And she has it of the world when she was just a child, where she knew nothing. They were on a holiday. And then she lays these images that I identify as images, such as you might see on Renee's film, from the most grotesque images of abandoned dead bodies. Yeah, Her work is always the tension, in this t- deep tension between carnality, eroticism, the living body, the joy of body, which is always being undermined from the darkest places of what she witnessed, what she saw, and death. But I I don't want her to be, Alina Shapochnikov, to be absorbed into the commercial market. I'm very happy for Piotr because he kept all this work in his garage as a poor young man because no one was interested after she died. She's now being conserved and preserved and archived. But her works are too expensive for every museum now. Museums won't collect her work unless somebody gives it. This little self-portrait is a price of several million it's being sold for, right? Which is superb in one sense, but it shows the complete perversity of our world where art is now so financialized and then with the financialization goes a cleaning up what are you going to tell the collectors who are going to buy this work they don't want to know that they're going to deal with the work that is the deepest and most probing exploration of the deepest horrors of the 20th century they want the lamps the penises the flowers the fruit with no sense that there's something troubling there
0: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned earlier The Bachelor's Ashtray, which was made in 1972, I think is one of the most contradictory works of hers in the sense that she's literally burnt off the top half of the face and she has this silent lips and you can even see where the wax has fallen, where the cigarettes and the mattress were. I mean, it's just... Well, the question is, they weren't yet fully
1: aware of that tobacco smoking is going to cause cancer. Yeah. But clearly, maybe she's telling Julie Christie, don't smoke.
0: (laughs) Maybe, maybe. I mean, you mentioned it earlier, but I mean, right at the end of her life, her series Herbarium, which is just made up of these flattening polyester imprints of negative body casts. I mean, the fragility of life and the fragility of the body and flesh is just so much of her work, I guess, is just so indescribable because I think it it's just so difficult to... Put into words, but I I also want to talk about in 1970, just before this. um, You know, she made a trip to New York. In your text, you mentioned you know a fantasization of different outcome of art history if there had been a meaningful encounter during her stay in the city between Alina and Eva Hesse and Louise Bourgeois, Uh, but most notably Hannah Wilkie, I mean, who was exploring similar materials such as chewing gum. So this is another thing, what we now know as Alina Shapovnikov's photo sculptures. She created these incredible, malleable sculptures that she almost cast in her mouth using chewing gum that have these anatomical forms. I mean, how should we look at these artists, Hannah Wilkie, Alina Shapovnikov, how should we look at their histories and how have these informed both their works?
1: My position is that works are products of history. That's why I'm a social historian of art. You know, I've always fought against this idea that art should be somehow liberated from sociology and history because it rises above as the pure expression of creativity. I think art articulates history formally and in ways that make us understand what it was, not telling us the story that we already have, but drawing us into understanding it as it's experienced, as it's lived as it's reflected upon. And so Hannah Wilkie was also Jewish. She was very much aware of and thoughtful about what had happened in Europe to members of her extended family. But also Hannah Wilkie was very thoughtful about the question of the invisibility of women or the sort of figuration of women and what it would be to represent lived bodies. That's going to become a very crucial bit, precisely because in the 60s we are going to see this radical shift from the dominance of painting and sculpture as the great master art. But in the 60s, we're going to see dematerialization, the emergence of conceptual art, performance, video art. So they're all products of a kind of radical expansion of the possibilities of artistic languages, which they embrace. And so there's a beginning, it's a pre-feminist decade because there isn't yet the articulation of it, but there's the pressure towards it and it's showing up in in the femme maison by Louise Bourgeois. It's a protest, it's a strong sense of that. But the, the thing that's interesting about Alina Shapochnikov's photo sculptures is she makes the sculpture inside the mouth and then she sees that it makes these interesting sculptural forms. So it's the sculptural imagination again as she puts them down. Then it's Roman Sislevich who photographs them. So what we are receiving is his photographs, which take these tiny, tiny bits of scum and make them seem formless pieces, etc. which is, again, the abject. And I think it was a perfect example of experimentation, invention. Oh, right. Mm, take it out. Look at it. See it. Put it down. Roman, come and photograph this. What happens if I blow it up?
0: Oh, that's fascinating. What happens if I make a series? I mean, she was just so experimental, inventive, and just playing on the idea of creating images inside the mouth. The object which had been fetishized throughout society and also with chewing gum, which probably might have been a kind of new American phenomenon at the time. It's just fascinating and such an interesting comment on society. But I mean, she died in 1973 and from breast cancer. Again, so young, so young on the cusp of the 70s, like you said, when art historians are really kind of discussing feminist art. So I'd just love to ask you, what do you think her art has taught you? Our minds are closed
1: so often to the nature of the world, and we need to learn from art because it insists that we confront it. Where did this come from? What does it mean? How does it transform a certain kind of experience that is unspeakable for her into something I have to speak about. And in doing so, I provide a language in which we will recognize the unutterable anguish of the world. And now that we're in a pandemic, we are going to be living with this for the next two years. Our lives will never be the same. And we will now look at artists as we look back to the Spanish flu to find how did Virginia Woolf write that into her book, Mrs. Dalloway? How did T.S. Eliot write it into the wasteland where is the traces of that terror in art that can teach us to think about this and I'm really interested in what artists will do now so art teaches me to become aware to think back towards the world rather than on an individual basis and I think the seriousness of her work is much more rooted in historical experience.
0: Griselda thank you so much I mean I, I I can't tell you what an honour it is to just hear you speak about her work so brilliantly and so informatively and, and deeply. I think this is such a resource for the listeners and for art historians coming after us. And I just can't wait for the world to really see more of Alina Shapovnikov's work. But as says the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests... If Alina was around now, or perhaps you had met her when you were younger, would there be anything that you would have said to her or asked her about her work?
1: This is another millennial question, but I'm, I'm <laughs> going to respond to it. With I a know, fish. I'm sorry. No, no, you, you don't be sorry, but it's just, you know, it is. But I, I thought about this one and I thought, you know, can I do it? But I suppose what I say, <laughs> you know, to all of these artists is thank you for daring to do what you've done, for persisting in the struggle to find aesthetic forms adequate to this incredibly profound and important kind of experience. And it's a traumatic experience that daring to stay that close to these forms, but nonetheless constantly seeking to escape them into joy. Well, thank you so much for Griselda
0: for coming on the podcast today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Katie, and all the best to you and continue to do this great work.
0: Thank you all so much for listening to the 50th episode of the Great Women Artists Podcast with the feminist icon Griselda Pollock on the brilliant pioneering Elena Shapochnikov. I am just in awe of Shapovnikov's important work and the way that she disrupted sculpture and urge you all to look it up. As always, I have linked to the works in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Laura Hendry. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Woman Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.